All right. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be here. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Jeff Pruitt, and I'm just excited to get to explore God's Word with you guys today. Uh, This summer, we are doing a series called The Miners, and it's looking at a group of books in the Old Testament that are called the Minor Prophets. And they're called the Minor Prophets because they are shorter books, even though they are packed with lots of important principles. Um, But they're shorter books than some of the bigger prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, who wrote much, much more. And throughout this series, several of us are uh, serving as guest speakers to give Aaron a much-needed break. And I am just so thankful for how he works so hard each week to faithfully bring us God's Word and help us to apply it. I'm sure you are, too. Well, today we get to learn from a prophet named Amos. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from him that I didn't know. So would you stand with me and we'll read our verse for this morning. Amos 5.24 says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word and how each time we come to it, there is more for us to learn, more to feed us and grow us. And God, I just pray you would help us this morning to hear what you want us to hear. Help us to really understand your heart better and help us to apply your word to our lives, even in the areas that might be difficult. God, I pray you'd move in our spirit or move in us through your spirit. Change us more and more to be like Christ because of our time together and our time with you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat. Well, did that scripture sound familiar to you at all? Um, I know for me, I first thought it was from a song I might have heard, but it turns out Amos 5.24 is quoted in a very famous speech. In uh, 1963, a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a speech called I Have a Dream. You might have heard of it. Um, And he quoted Amos. He actually quoted Amos as he called for justice at a time in American history where many, many people were living in it in great injustice. And really, even today, injustice is very easy to find. We see criminals and politicians, businesses, even government leaders getting away with things that if we got caught, we would go to jail for. Um, And it's just tough. And when we witness or experience that kind of injustice firsthand, I think it really makes our hearts hurt. And sometimes, at least for me, it can cause me to wonder if God's paying attention. It feels like the bad guys are winning way too much. And those who try to stand up for justice, they're either ignored or canceled or worse. Well, I can assure you that God is paying attention And the book of Amos just gives us this great, rich example of a time when God stepped in and delivered a powerful message against injustice, which has been preserved for us over thousands of years so that we could be encouraged by it. And I think once you dig in with me, you'll agree this message feels like it really could have been written today to some of our leaders and nations, even though it was actually written to the country of Israel. Well, let me set the stage a little bit for our book. Amos was written and delivered about 750 years before Jesus was born. And after King Solomon's reign, 
Israel broke up into two different countries, the Northern Kingdom, which still called themselves Israel, and the Southern Kingdom, which called themselves Judah. And there was deep animosity between the two kingdoms. Even though they were both considered part of God's people, they were still all Israelites, each side viewed each other as less than and on the wrong side of God's blessing and God's will. And that kind of reminded me a little bit of some political parties we're familiar with in our country. We're all still the same country. But Israel saw each other as opponents. Even though the Israelite people were divided like this into two countries, they enjoyed a time of great prosperity during Amos's life. They controlled all the trade routes, they had a strong military, and they had a booming economy. But what looked good on the outside really had cracks in the foundation. Something was deeply wrong, and Amos was about to call attention to it. Amos lived in Judah, in that southern kingdom. He was a sheep herder or sheep breeder, possibly over large herds of sheep or in charge of other shepherds. And he also farmed sycamore figs, which meant he had at least a couple of income streams to provide for himself and his family. He was probably pretty prosperous. Amos actually tells us in the book that he was not a priest and he was never trained to be a prophet. And so he just seems to be this ordinary guy with a family and a farm and a bunch of sheep and goats. And then God calls this ordinary guy to speak out against the injustices that were occurring around him and raise it to the most powerful people in the land. I mean, just imagine what the stakes would have been like for Amos. You have your family, you have workers, you have land, animals, crops, all of these things you're responsible for, and you're dependent on the economic engine that's flowing through Judah and Israel and the nations around them. And then God tells you to speak up and tell the most powerful and influential people that you depend on that something they're doing is very wrong. And not just a little bit wrong, it's actually evil. So what do you have to lose, right? I mean, everything. Things were so corrupt at this time that Amos 5.13 tells us that the prudent kept quiet. That means the wise people kept their mouths shut and their heads down because it was dangerous to do anything different. So Amos is walking into this bad situation with little reason to hope for any kind of good outcome, but he has this message from God that he feels like he just has to share. And I don't know if you can relate, if you've ever had to go to your boss with bad news, or maybe to your spouse with some bad news, maybe you got a ticket or bounced a check, I don't know. It's tough when you have to deliver bad news. But I think we can actually learn something, even before we get to what Amos talked about from his example. When the stakes were high, he decided to stand on the side of truth. He followed God even when it could cost him a lot personally. God gave Amos the courage to do what was right, even when it was extremely difficult. And I think we can trust that God will also enable us to do what's right when we face difficult decisions. So let's look at the message that God gave Amos together and see what we can learn from it. The book of Amos is actually written in the form of a lawsuit. Uh, right up front, Amos declares he's bringing a lawsuit based on a breach of covenant with the creator of the universe. And in this lawsuit, God is suing his people 
the Israelites. Wouldn't you love to be served those papers, right? God's suing you. Oh, and one more thing, he's also the judge. So good luck, right? (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, there's probably two or three of you that would love to read a lawsuit or a legal brief, but for the rest of us, I am going to try to just give us a Cliff's Notes version of the book. There are nine chapters, there's lots more we could cover. We're just gonna look at three parts. We're gonna look at first, Amos's delivery of his message to this king, King Jeroboam. Second, we're gonna look at the charges in the lawsuit. And then third, we're gonna look at a remedy. God in his mercy offered a remedy to the Israelites. And then we'll wrap up by looking at some ways we can apply this message to our own lives. So let's start by looking at Amos chapter one, verse two. If you wanna grab the Element Bible in front of you, It's on page 496. Uh, I didn't do slides, so you're going to have to follow along in your Bible or the version. so pay attention, keep up. I'll try to feed you the verses. So Amos steps in front of King Jeroboam II, who is the king over the northern kingdom, the northern half of Israel after they split, and he delivers this high-stakes message. Verse 2, he, Amos, is talking. Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherd dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. So Amos announces God is bringing the thunder. He is bringing charges. A lawsuit is coming. The charges start in verse 3. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. So starting with the city of Damascus, Amos begins laying out charges against several nations that had sinned against God and had harmed the Israelites. The phrase for three sins and even for four is a poetic phrase that's repeated over and over again in this book to show that each nation had gone up to God's limit and then exceeded it. They've gone over the top. And Amos just goes condemning six different nations in the first two chapters. Uh, Aram, which is the city that Damascus was in, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab are all called out. And these nations had actually waged constant barbaric raids on the Israelite people, some of them even ripping babies from mothers' wombs in their conquests. They had also sold people into slavery and oppressed the poor through corrupt business practices and military brutality, just to list a few of the things that they um, had committed against the Israelite people. And as Amos is declaring God's condemnation against these nations, you can just imagine King Jeroboam nodding along. These are his enemies. He's probably thinking, yeah, they should be punished. Throw the book at them. They're pure evil. And then Amos calls out Judah, the southern kingdom, which was part of that divided Israelite kingdom. And it was also where Amos lived. So he calls out his own people in chapter 2, verse 4. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Judah had refused to follow the instructions that God had given through Moses. 
and they had turned to worshiping idols instead. And so I have to think, Amos's audience is really enjoying this so far. The evil nations around them have all been condemned, and now Judah, their political enemy, has just been caught playing dirty, and God is going to light them all up for it. But Amos wasn't done yet. Just as Jeroboam's probably feeling pretty good and thinking about how badly his neighbors deserved this message, Amos suddenly turns to Jeroboam and lays out God's charges and judgment on his kingdom. And again, I think there's another important lesson here we can pull out. Like Jeroboam, I can remember many times sitting in church and thinking, wow, this sermon is so good. And then as I'm thinking about it, a name pops in my head, and I start thinking, wow, they really need to hear this. This would be super convicting for them. It's going to be really hard-hitting. And sometimes I find I'm kind of playing the same game as Jeroboam. I'm thinking of someone else this message might apply to and avoiding applying it to my own life and my own heart. And how much better would it be if we would first think, you know, God, what do you want me to learn from this message? And how can I apply it to my heart and my life? And then if God puts somebody on your heart to share it with after that, great. Maybe he's going to move you in that direction. But trying to be careful to not let that idea of somebody else cause us to avoid applying something God wants us to hear and, and practice. Well, getting back to the story, Amos He's talking to Jeroboam. He breaks into just rapid fire, listing off sin after sin after sin that Israel has committed. Many, many of the same sins that they just went through with all these other countries. And then Amos launches into three speeches to present the evidence that shows Israel is decidedly guilty of all of these. And I'm guessing Jeroboam is looking for a place to hide right about then. Well, we don't have time to like, list every single sin, um, so we're going to focus on two big themes of sin that God condemned Israel for. First, Israel had corrupted their system of justice, and then second, they had corrupted their worship of God. So let's look at the first charge, which comes under the theme of corrupted justice in Amos 2.6. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. So in pursuit of greater wealth and prosperity, the Israelites started to sell their own people into slavery. And in cases where the people weren't actually sold, literally, they were overtaxed. And then when they couldn't pay the bill, their land would be taken from them. And then the land would be rented back to them. Um, but it would be rented at this rate that was exorbitant so that they could just barely make rent based on the crops that they could grow on that land. And then when they would go to sell their crops, they were cheated out of a fair price for their crops. Archaeologists have actually found um, two sets of scales in the shops from the ancient ruins of Israel that date back to this time period. One of those scales was for buying and one set was for selling, so that each transaction is rigged in the merchant's favor. So all of this kept the poor enslaved to their land and oppressed by the wealthy and the powerful. And 
If anyone was brave enough to try to do anything about it, they quickly found that the courts were corrupt. Look at Amos 5.10 with me. It's a little bit further. 5.10. You hate the one who reproves in court. And that term reproves in court means it's the one who judges honestly. So you hate honest judges and you despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. The Israelites had just completely corrupted the justice system, and they did it in order to build up their wealth and live a life of luxury, all at the expense of the poor. But they had actually done more than just corrupt their justice, they had also corrupted worship, which is the second big theme of sins that Amos charges King Jeroboam with. The people of Israel had set up these elaborate worship festivals and ceremonies and sites, but they weren't coming to worship God the way that he had instructed them. You can actually see this in Amos 5, verse 21, which is just a couple more verses down. And we see what God has to say here about their worship. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Israel loved to practice their acts of worship, but their heart was in the wrong place. It was somewhere completely different. They had corrupted their worship by living this life of compromise, focusing on themselves, and failing to care for their poor and oppressed neighbors that were around them. And God here just declares that that kind of worship was noise to him because Israel was not approaching God the right way or listening to his words. And so he didn't want it. God wanted their hearts to align with his, and he wanted their lives to demonstrate loving obedience, but all he was getting was their self-focused worship. And those are pretty harsh words. But then the last line, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream, is like a massive mic drop. God is saying his justice and his righteousness cannot be stopped. Just like you can't stop a stream, like good luck, right, with your hand or something. God's declaring he will not stand by and let injustice and sin and oppression last forever. His judgment is coming and there will be a reckoning. Well, God reveals to Amos his plan for judgment in a series of visions that comes after this in the book. And in one vision, Amos tells how he saw a wall that had been built and a plumb line that was measuring whether that wall was true. And, and if you aren't familiar with a plumb line, this is what a plumb line looks like. So it's a little weight that's attached to a string. I'll move it on this side too so you can see that side. Um, and the weight uses gravity to pull this string straight, and then you can hold it up to a, something and see whether it's actually upright, whether it's actually true. And through this vision, God is telling Israel that 
His judgment is going to be against a true standard, just like a plumb line. God's standard of justice and righteousness is the standard. It is the only standard. And Israel already knew they were guilty through all of this. So Amos 5.27 tells us the sentence for their guilt. What were the consequences? Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord. This is expanded in Amos 9.8 and a couple other places. But Amos 9.8 says, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. God was telling them he was going to send another nation to take the Israelites out of their land and into captivity. Their nation would no longer exist as a country the way that they had enjoyed. And at first to me, this exile seems kind of harsh, right? But remember, God had given them many, many chances and warnings over many years leading up to this, which they all ignored. In fact, Amos wasn't the only one warning them. Jonah, Isaiah, Micah, and Hosea all lived at this same time, were all trying to get Israel's attention. So these warnings and even this exile are really God's way of trying to draw the Israelites back to himself to get their attention. So I don't think it's actually as harsh as it seems at first glance. Well, Amos' prophecy came true about 40 years later, so they still had time. The Assyrians overran Israel and took most of the people into exile in 722 BC. And this was a tragic, tragic outcome. A lot of people died in the process. And we see here that God is really just. He does stand for justice. He doesn't let injustice keep going. And yet we also know that God is good. And so how do we reconcile that? The scriptures tell us that God is slow to anger, and that he also takes no delight in the death of the wicked. So before this prophecy came true, God actually provided a merciful remedy to Israel, still in this book, and it's found in Amos 5, verse 14, if you want to back up just a little bit. He says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. God doesn't promise that they'll avoid the suffering and the captivity that's coming, but he does seem to promise that if they return to him on his terms, their lives will be spared in that hostile takeover that's coming. So what would returning to God and approaching him on his terms look like for the Israelites? Well, as we think about this, remember that Amos and the nation of Israel lived long before Jesus. They were still living under the law of Moses. And so the standard for them of returning to God, their plumb line, would be to be measured against the law, the law of Moses. Returning to God's standard of justice would mean to replace their corrupted justice system with upright justice. And it would include living their lives that seek good and not evil and returning to obeying the law of Moses. God would spare their lives if they would stop using and abusing and oppressing their neighbors 
and instead show them the love that the law required. And in the same way, for them, returning to God's standard of upright worship would mean returning to obeying the instructions for ceremonial worship within the law of Moses. God would spare their lives if they got rid of their self-focused worship, which was stained with disobedience, and if they would just return to worshiping him with their hearts and their lives. But if we stop and think about how this applies to us, remember that we live on the other side of the cross historically. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, and he established a new covenant with everyone who trusts in him as their savior. This all happened when he was crucified and then resurrected, which was 750 years after Amos and 2,000 years ago for us. So if we tried to return to obeying the law of Moses, it wouldn't make sense for us. But even though the law has been fulfilled, God still desires that we live with upright justice toward one another, and he wants us to approach him with upright worship under what we call the new covenant. He desires this so much that he put his Holy Spirit in us to change us and empower us so that we could live in this new way that the Israelites failed to do. So what does this new way of living look like? Jesus explains it to his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. On our side of the cross, we are called to love others with the same kind of love that Jesus had and has shown to us, which, of course, we can't do on our own. But the Holy Spirit can produce that kind of love uh, through us when we let him direct our thoughts and our emotions and our actions. And if you think about it, if we love other people the way Jesus loves us, and Jesus is perfectly just, then we will be living in upright justice towards others because our love and our actions will also be just. Well, what does upright worship look like for us today? Romans 12 describes it this way in verse 1. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. That means give all that you are to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them, let our bodies, be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So upright, true worship starts with us realizing all that God has done for us. He paid the price for all of our sins through the death of Jesus, and he offers anyone the gift of everlasting life if they trust in Christ's provision for them. Then, in response to what God's done, we show our gratitude by giving all of us back to him, our hearts, our minds, and our lives. It's not out of obligation anymore. Instead, we're giving all of us back to him out of the thankful response once we realize all that God has done. And in the process of giving God control of our hearts and our minds and our lives, we are actually transformed or sanctified, which is really just a big word to say God matures us in that process. He grows us up 
so that we look more and more like the character traits that we see in Jesus. Which is really exciting to be a part of that process and be on that side of the cross. Well, there's a lot more in this book that we could cover, but what do we just do with all of this? How should we respond to Amos' message at this high level? And I think there are two main responses um, that could apply, and, and it all really depends on where our hearts are at. It's entirely possible that both of these responses could apply to any one of us. I think first, if you are feeling poor or powerless in this season of life, maybe it's you're feeling spiritually poor or broken emotionally or financially poor or in some other way on the receiving end of injustice. Amos brings a message of comfort and encouragement. God is not absent. He's not unaware. He is paying attention, and he will intervene. Psalm 34, 18 says, God is near to the brokenhearted. He's close by. We can take comfort when we remember that God's end game is to bring justice and peace when he returns. This time of suffering is not going to last forever. God's justice will flow like a river. It will not be stopped ultimately. And I think we can also remember that God can relate to our suffering and feeling of receiving injustice. He personally endured a great injustice when, he, when Jesus took the wrath and the punishment for our sins that we deserved. That was unjust for him to suffer for us. So he has been on that side of things too. The second response that I see is this. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, then we might want to examine how we're doing when it comes to God's desires for us to live and live lives that demonstrate upright justice and upright worship. We can ask God to search our hearts for any areas that maybe need some attention and need to get in line with where he would like us to be. We could ask things like, am I corrupting justice by the way I practice business? Maybe I'm cheating on my taxes or cutting corners somewhere because I think, well, no one's really going to know. Am I corrupting justice by compromising my own character? Maybe I'm tolerating sin in my life and then justifying it because I know that God is full of grace. But that's still corrupting for our lives. Am I corrupting my love for others? Have I held on to bitterness against someone? Am I maybe oppressing my wife or my kids with my perfectionism or exasperating my family with my spiritual apathy or even hypocrisy? Am I corrupting my worship of God? For me, this usually starts with sins kind of creeping in, and I delay confessing those to God and getting right with Him. And then I try to worship God with these like gaping wounds from these sins that are not dealt with and, and pretending like they don't exist rather than admitting them to God, who already knows, and allowing him to help heal and transform those areas through his spirit so that I can worship him without feeling like I'm hiding something. Well, these are heavy questions, and they're questions that expose our hearts when we're brave enough to ask them. But 
I don't want you to miss this. If you feel a twinge of conviction or guilt as we talk about these kinds of things, realize that God brings these things into the light so that he can help us deal with them, all because of his great love for us. Remember that God is good, and even as he exposes sin in our hearts, it's like the skilled incision of a surgeon. That cut hurts, but it is intended to lead to healing. And once we see our sin for what it is, we know that God, through his spirit, will help us heal, help help teach us to depend on him, and he'll help us avoid those sins in the future. And as we learn to depend on him more and more, he transforms us to reflect Jesus's character more and more and helps us to live according to upright justice and upright worship, which is what he desires from us. Well, I'd like to call the band up to uh, lead us in some songs as a response to what we've just seen revealed about God and how good he is through Amos. And while they come up and get set up, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll give, us, give some instructions as we continue in worship. All right, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for being such a good, good God, thank you for the mercy you showed to the Israelites over and over again by sending prophets. Thank you for the mercy you've shown us over and over again by seeking us out and getting our attention and drawing us to yourself. Thank you for showing us that you are not indifferent in the face of suffering, that you do care, you do listen, you do pay attention, and you come near to those who are brokenhearted and hurting. And God, we are so grateful for that. I pray you'll comfort us when we're on the receiving end of wrongs done to us and help us to just remember that you are always near, especially in those painful times. And God, I also pray that you would help us to have the courage to stand up against injustice like like Amos did, that if there are things that you want us to step into, that you want us to um, side with truth on, that you would give us the courage to um, side with you, to speak out even if it is at cost to ourselves. And God, I just pray that you would teach us to be a people who pursue you with um, lives that are honoring to you, with worship that is pleasing to you, and Um, that you would along the way transform us, continue to mature us, to look more and more like Christ. And God, I pray that you would help me, help us to be people that are eager to run to you, even when we find ourselves convicted of sin, that we would run to you, depend on you, declare our need for you, and allow you to do the work in us to, to change us and allow us to live in the freedom of walking in truth and walking in alignment with your will. God, we thank you for your word and just how it has spoken to us this morning. And I pray you would just continue to allow it to sink in. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to do a couple of, I just lost my mic. There we go. All right, we're going to do a couple of songs. um, And we're going to just invite you to worship with us and to sing these songs even as a prayer if it's fitting, to to really use this time to connect with God. 
And in the process, during these couple songs, you're welcome to come up to any of the communion tables in the front or the back and take communion. We celebrate communion during this time as a congregation as just a reminder of all that Christ has done. We use symbols like the cup and the cracker to remind us of Christ's blood and his body, which were shed and broken for us on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could approach God at all and have a relationship with him and be transformed by him. It's such a great thing to celebrate together. So invite you to do that. And then I'd also invite you, if you do need prayer today, we have some people that would love to pray with you. You just go back through the double doors to the Welcome Center and we'll connect you with them and I'd love to pray with you. All right, let's continue in worship. <laughs> 